Good morning, guys. I'm not going to make you do it again. Don't worry. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who know me, my name is Tanner. Um, I used to be on the ministry team here, but then I stepped away for some personal reasons. And I'm a seventh grade teacher, so that should say enough. Um, I teach seventh grade English at a school in Berea, and I love it. Every bit of it. It's awesome. It's very difficult, but it is one of my absolute favorite things that I get to do. Um, so yeah, and I also get to preach every now and then. I serve on the teaching team here, and yeah, so that's a little bit about myself. Happy November, best time of the year, Thanksgiving season, right? Not Christmas yet. Sorry if you're one of those people. Not Christmas yet. I love Christmas time after my Thanksgiving nap. After my post-turkey nap, I love Christmas. But until then, Mariah Carey can stay frozen, and then... (laughs) On Thanksgiving, she can start to thaw out a little bit. So, yeah. So, so happy November, all that to say. Um, We just finished up an amazing series. There's some artwork on the wall. There's some pictures and paintings and a crab, a bunch of things on the walls over here that we did during our series called Storied. How many of you guys participated in any of the painting classes, writing workshops, worship night, praxis, any of that stuff? Wasn't it awesome? Yeah. So our lead team and our ministry team here did an amazing job leading that and hosting that. And uh, I think they're almost getting kind of finished with the whole book that they're putting together from them sermons. So be on the lookout of the, for those. And I have the privilege of going into the next thing, kind of like a substitute teacher after Thanksgiving break, where everyone's tired, no one wants to do anything, so they just put somebody else in there to give all their energy out. So we are back in our lectionary reading until Christmas. It's going to lead us through our Advent season, and we're going to go all the way up to Christmas, and then probably through New Year's, and then we're going to start something new in the new year. I have the privilege of preaching the very popular text from the book Haggai. Raise your hand if you've ever heard a sermon from the book Haggai before. Three people. Great. Three people. Haggai is a book that is actually very important in the whole story of salvation. Um, And there are two things that I want us to look for while we're going through the book today. The first thing is, I want you to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Look for Jesus in the Old Testament. And then when I was in undergrad studies, I had a professor that would say, choice implies meaning. So when you're reading through this, I want you to look at the way things are phrased, the way things are chosen to be written, the way the author chose to write these. This book was written by a human being who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by a human being to tell a story about God's character and about who he is. So we're going to walk through the first chapter. I'm not going to read the first chapter. Don't worry. And we're going to walk through it and kind of talk about the events of what happened in Haggai 1 that lead us into Haggai 2. Um. So Haggai takes place 12 years or so after Cyrus conquered Babylon. Babylon was the country that took over the Israelites and forced them into exile. And then under Cyrus was a man named King Darius. And King Darius gave a decree that allowed the Jews to go back into Judea. And this was 70 years after the temple was destroyed. Okay, so that is a very significant event that happened in Jewish history. 
And so the outline of Haggai, the first five chapters, God tells Haggai, the people who have returned to Jerusalem have built their own houses rather than building up the Lord's house because the time was not right to do so. And so what we see in Haggai is that um, they planted much, but there was a little harvest. They ate a lot and was never satisfied. They drank a lot and they were never happy. They had clothes on, but they were never warm. And then their money was just disappearing left and right. They didn't have any. And so then you keep reading on, and God's house still lies in ruins while the people are busy with their own. And then the Lord is continuing to point out that all the things they thought would be fruitful actually, excuse me, turned out to be lacking. And this is because they ignored rebuilding God's house. Therefore, they ignored glorifying God. So Haggai says, it's because of this failure, the Lord um, allowed the skies to withhold dew, the land withheld crops, God brought droughts. Everything that their hands tried to produce was affected by not glorifying God. But then we see this promise show up in verses 12 through 13, where it says, the people decided to build the temple and the Lord declared through Haggai that I am with you. Remember that. That is a very, very important promise that God has made to the Israelites throughout the entire history of their people. And I want us to hold on to those words, I am with you. And so then it ends up going to the next part of Haggai where Haggai tells Zerubbabel and Joshua, kind of like their governor and their high priest, to build a temple. For Israel, if there was no temple, there was no worship. And so now that brings us all the way up to Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. So if you're in Haggai chapter 2, I want you to follow along with me as I read these, and we're going to jump right in. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the, the remembrance of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, for my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more in a little while, I am going to shake up the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations so that the treasure of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So this eyesore right here is going to be a way that we kind of walk through the events of this book. So this is one of the only times in Scripture where we know the exact day that something is happening. So when you hear seventh month, you usually think of what? The seventh month of the year is July. However, in this calendar back in 500 BC, this date would have been around October 21st. Okay, So October 21st was day six 
of a festival of tabernacles. And if you want to know more about the festival of tabernacles, look in John chapter 7, where Jesus acknowledges the festival and what's going on there. But the festival of tabernacles is a very important event in Jewish history because it reminded people when the Lord led them through the wilderness and people were dependent on the Lord. So in the opening ceremony, which would have been on October 15th of this year, they did no work. They did sacrifices, but they did no work. And then they worked all week long up into October 22nd, so which is the day after this is being written, when there was a closing ceremony where there was no work. And so on the day that Haggai was encouraging these people to work and to build this temple, it would have been one of the last days that they could have worked. It was a day that they were supposed to be working and offering gifts to the temple. And as they worked, they would have had in mind the old temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. All right, you track in with this, understanding how this is going? So the seventh month, which is October, not July in in the Jewish calendar, is significant in Jewish tradition for several reasons. One being that Solomon's temple was dedicated during the seventh month and historically and traditionally remembered during this time. This is important background information for Haggai because... In 1 Kings, when the first temple is being built, Solomon acknowledges that the temple does not contain Yahweh himself, but God manifests his presence at the temple, even though he's not there physically. So this temple was used to be a place where people could go and pray and make sacrifices and work and honor God and worship. And to be honest, guys, when God told them to rebuild this temple, people were probably not excited about it, having to rebuild this massive temple. So 70 years, the temple laid in ruins. So uh, Stephen, can you put the picture up on the screen? This is kind of what the temple, original temple would have looked like. And the temple that the people were building to be satisfied for worship probably looked something like this. This is the temple, really, really bad. And that is a not happy God with the temple. So do you see the difference, though? The difference. This first temple is there, massive, big, reverent, magnificent. This temple would have gotten knocked over by the big bad wolf. And so God was not happy with what was going on. For Solomon's generation, they experienced God being with them through the temple. And then those that came after Solomon's temple was destroyed had no recollection of this magnificent temple. When we look back at like pictures and stuff of what we went through, we can see actual pictures. I was scrolling through my Instagram feed last night to try to find a picture of when the last time I went to Tandem was and couldn't find it. But I saw a bunch of other pictures that I posted in like 2013 that I was super embarrassed of. And so we can all look back on our pictures and see exactly what was happening, exactly what was going on. But these people had no memory of this because they did not exist when this temple was flourishing and it was built. And so they were like, temple, got it. Here's a tent, call it a day. And so God, responding to this in verse 3 with kind of a sassy tone, says, who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Most of the generation who experienced the glory of this, this great temple have died out, and this new generation did not have the expectations or the experience of the old temple. 
Think about how hype people probably were the first time this was being built. Like you see the gold pillars, the statues, all these different things going around. Think about like a restaurant or a store that's opening up near here. It's like Uptown Cheapskate, really cool like thrift store opening right around the corner. I remember the last time I was really excited about something being built. So this summer I went to Myrtle Beach three separate times down and back. And on every trip down and back, I stopped at one place. I would go out of my way to stop at this place, Bucky's. I was so happy about going to Bucky's. Who raised your hand if you've never been to Bucky's? Okay, so Bucky's is like gas station galore. It's like you can fuel your car, you can fuel your body with brisket sandwiches that are smoked in the parking lot, and you can fuel your soul with all the things around it. You can get shirts. You can get anything cast iron that you ever wanted. You can get a cast iron brand with your like initials on it. It's so cool. But the last time I was hype about going somewhere was Bucky's. And I imagine in a similar way, when this temple was being built, people were probably like, man, I can't wait to go worship here. I can't wait to go do this. I can't wait to go make these sacrifices in this great big temple. And then all of a sudden, the temple was destroyed. And people in Haggai's generation were more concerned with building their own houses than building the temple. And so I want us to read the prayer that Solomon prayed from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and kind of like a dedication to the, to the temple, dedicating the temple to God. So I want you to just listen and kind of imagine the way that Solomon was feeling after seeing this temple being built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you today, so that your eyes may watch over this temple night and day toward the place where you said, my name will be there. And so that you may hear the prayer that your servant prays towards this place. Hear the petition of your servant and your people Israel, which they pray towards this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. Solomon looked at this temple with reverence and glory while the new generation of Israelites neglected to build a temple of that standard. God was reminding them through the prophet Haggai the promise of his presence so that they would remember how his presence dwelt among them. Look for Jesus in the Old Testament. In the midst of Haggai reminding the Israelites of God's command to build the temple. God reminds the people of the promise made to them in Egypt. Haggai Haggai 2 verse 5 says, This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. And so when you use the Bible to go, it's called cross-textualization, to go back and see where things happen in Scripture that are being referenced in other books, this promise is found in Exodus 33, verses 14 and 15. And this is what it says. And he replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. So the importance of Haggai in the story of salvation is to recognize two things. The living presence of God in the temple and to recognize that something greater than Solomon's temple is coming. Choice implies 
meaning. You'll notice in this text, the Lord of armies is repeated in this passage a lot. And when I first started studying this, I was like, what the heck does this even mean? Like Lord of armies, he's talking about building a house. He's not talking about building a temple. He's not talking about fighting people. Like why is he using Lord of armies? God uses this name for himself to remind the people of his presence with him. Because everywhere else in the Old Testament, when the Lord of armies is used, it is used to describe God when he is present with people in battle, winning victories on behalf of the Israelites. And it is used here in Haggai to remind the people that the God who went before their ancestors and won battles for them is still with them now. They didn't have a photo reel that they could go through and see this old temple, but what they did have is they did have the Lord of armies in their mind knowing that he is still with them. They didn't have this recollection knowing that God was with them in this temple, but what they did have is the recent, recent, uh, recent victories of battle that was being won, knowing that it was the same God that delivered the Israelites out of Egypt that was with them now. And so you may be asking, this is cool, this is great, this is a really big history lesson. How does Christ fit into all this? When Jesus was on earth with his disciples, he was Jewish. He couldn't have been a Christian because Christian means little Christ, and he was Christ. So he was Jewish, and Jewish was aware of these festivals and all the traditions that was present in the Jewish tradition. He also knew the importance of the temple and the presence of God in the temple. He taught in the temple as an adult, as you see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you also see that he even spent time in the temple as a kid. So it was important in his whole life that he was there at the temple. And the importance of Haggai in the story of salvation is to recognize the living presence of God in the temple and to foreshadow how important it is for the disciples and everyone who saw Jesus to recognize the presence of the living God in him. So if you look in Haggai verses 2 or chapter 2 verses 6 through 10 this is what it says it says for the lord of armies says this once more in a little while i am going to shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land i will shake the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and i will fill this house with glory says the lord of armies the silver and gold belong to me This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So the new temple that Haggai is prophesying of is Jesus. This new temple is Jesus. So prophets use a lot of poetic language in their writing that drew on images and pictures to help people paint images in their mind. So it is also, this is a warning, it is very dangerous to use these literary approaches to interpret things literally. So for example, these verses right here have been used incorrectly talking about the end times, quote unquote. For the Lord of armies says once more, in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. All this is really saying, guys, is that God is going to do something out of the ordinary to shake up the world in which, which in turn points to Christ. 
So the imagery of treasures and silver and gold are used to show that even the Babylonians, the rich nation that conquered them, won't be greater than the temple that is coming. Does that make sense? We understand that? So when you read prophecies in the Bible, you don't need to take language like this literally. He's not saying, I'm going to shake them and I'm going to dump all the money out into the temple. That's not what's happening there. That was a piece of my dog hair. That's not what he's saying there. What he's saying is, I'm going to shake the world and it's going to point to something that's greater than the temple, that's greater than the Babylonians that, are, that conquered you before. And then we see this prophecy fulfilled in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. Kind of a burn right there. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Is here. Not only has God's presence been revealed to all people through the resurrection, Jesus promises that his presence will be with them, with us, with you, with me, until the end of the age. And that is where we get the Great Commission. That's what comes into play here from Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in theology, there's this term called Christology. And Christology basically is just the study of Christ and how his life impacted everything around him. So in Haggai, God's promise, God promises his presence through the temple, okay? But in the pre-incarnation, and all incarnation means is what we're about to celebrate here in a few, few weeks at Christmas is the birth of Christ, the birth of God coming through into man, stepping into creation as a human, the pre-incarnation way of God being with his people is through the temple. The incarnation, Jesus is saying, I am with you and will sustain you for all your days. So you have Haggai saying, God is with you and will sustain you for all your days. Jesus is saying, I am with you and I will sustain you for all your days. And then... Uh, and the re- after the resurrection, God is with you through his Holy Spirit. So in the Old Testament, God is with you with, through the temple. When Jesus is on earth, Jesus is with you physically. And then when Jesus ascends, after the 40 days of him being back on earth, after his resurrection, he ascends. 
And then God sends his Holy Spirit, which we've studied before here in the book of Acts. God sends his Holy Spirit, and that is with us, living within us. So Haggai's post-exile setting, so when they come back from exile from Babylon, correlates with the immediate post-resurrection setting of the ending of Matthew, where Jesus takes the Old Testament promise of I am with you, centers it around himself, and tells his disciples that I am with you. I am the temple that is with you. Refusal to build the temple was refusal to glorify God. Jesus, the one who defeated evil and death on the cross through his resurrection, is with you today, tomorrow, forever, and always. And if we're not following Jesus, then we're not following the God of the Old Testament. And as I was trying to figure out how I wanted to end this sermon, I didn't want to just give a straight up like, and remember, God is with you in all of your hardships. While that is true, that's just a blanket statement because I don't know what you're going through or you're going through or you're going through, and that's not fair to say. But what I want to share with you now is a, a story um, that happened with one of my students a few months ago. So we were in the cafeteria at lunch, and, and I noticed this student who had just got transferred onto my team from another team because she couldn't stop fighting this one girl. Um, and so she got transferred over to my team. And I had no idea what was going on, who this person was, anything like that. And I see her standing in the cafeteria, just screaming at this one girl, screaming at a teacher and everything. And then she just storms out. And I'm like, well, you can't do that. So then I follow her out of the cafeteria and see her just standing in the hallway like this, just staring straight down at her feet. And I walked up to her and I said, hey, like, are you okay? And then she starts yelling at me. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't do anything to you. You're directing your anger at me. It's okay to feel this way, but you're yelling at me for something I didn't do. And so then she kind of calms down a little bit. And I'm like, hey, can we just go back in here and sit down? You don't have to go up on the lunch detention. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. Just go in here and sit down. I just want to make sure you're okay. Make sure you're safe. And then she looks at me and she says, you're wasting your time. I'm not worth it. You're not going to help me. I don't need help. I'm not worth your help. And I said, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm not leaving until you're safe. And she looks at me again and she says, I'm not worth it. And just starts kind of like laughing. Like when you know, like you don't believe someone, you kind of just laugh it off. Then I look at her and I say, I have 40 students in the cafeteria that I'm responsible for right now. But I'm not going anywhere until I know that you're back in here or you're somewhere safe. And then she looks up at me again and she says, you're wasting your time. I'm not worth helping. And I look at her and I say, I know you don't trust me. I know you don't know me. I know you've been in my class for, what, two days? And I said, but I just need you, I need 1% of your trust to follow me to a place where you can be safe, to follow me down the hallway into this room where you can sit down and be safe. And I said, can you do that? And she said, yeah. So we walked down, walked down the hallway and sit Stand, kind of stand at the entrance to this office where there's a couch and like some stress balls and stuff like that where she can go and sit. And she says, I'm about to have a mental breakdown. And I said, okay, well, let's go in here and you can have it. 
but what we can't do is just have it in the hallway where you're going to endanger other people, where other things are going to be done. And then I say, all this is happening this is about a 30-minute conversation. And I tell her, I say, I have to go take my students back up to class. So I'm going to give you the choice. You can either stand in the hallway and have your breakdown, and an administrator is going to find you, and it's going to be a whole thing, and I can't help you. But if you trust me 1% and you make the decision to go sit into this room, then I can do anything that you need me to do to help you because you're showing me that you want to take that step. And so I said, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to call her, the lady who was in the office, in just a little while and see what you did. So I walk away, go to the cafeteria, get my kids, go back upstairs. She comes to my class later that day. And she looks at me and she says, thank you. And I said, for what? She said, I went in there and sat down. And then the administrator came to get me. And I told him what you told me. And because of that, I'm not going home today. And I said, okay. To this day, when she comes into class, she doesn't sit at her desk. She doesn't sit with her friends. She doesn't sit by herself. She pulls a chair up and sits right beside me at my desk every single day. And it's not because of anything I did or not because of who I am as a person or anything like that. The only reason she does that is because I showed her one person cares about her enough to do whatever it takes to make her feel safe. And guys, that is, that is what Jesus does for us. You give him 1% half a percent of trust. You look at him. You think of his name. You pray to him. You say, God, I'm here. He takes that step to be with you, present in your depression, present in your financial crisis, present anywhere. And what I'm not saying is that's going to change anything, but what I'm saying is you have a comforter. You have peace with the king of kings. You have peace with the prince of peace. And all Jesus is asking you to do, give me 1%. Trust me. Trust me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the peace you give. Thank you for being a safe place for us to go when, when our world is crumbling before us, when everything that we do makes no sense. And Lord, as I'm reminded of that student and the way that she has impacted me personally, God, I ask for your peace to be upon her upon her, and her family. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room that has experienced anything shy of your peace and shy of your rest, God, I pray that you will meet them in the seat where they are right now. You will meet them wherever it may be. Jesus, thank you again for all, for all the sacrifices you made so that we could sacrifice to be with you. And it is in your name that I pray. Amen.